nothing less than overt acts of aggression against the American people and their rights. Exercise your rights in a safe way. Stupidity to think that someone hell-bent on violating the law against murder will magically be stopped by a gun control law. Politicians that infringe on our God-given rights. He calls them out. He's not here to play. You heard the man. He said it twice. Let's go. We are locked and loaded on the Shooting Straight Radio podcast. All about firearms, the Second Amendment, and all things pertaining thereto. And I'm Royce, your host, realigning the constitutional conscience of America in regards to the Second Amendment. Thousands of listeners at a time. Thanks for joining me on the program today. Uh, Especially, this is the day of a very momentous decision. Uh, Maybe by the time you listen to this, it will be the day after the momentous Supreme Court decision regarding the New York State Rifle and Pistol Club Association versus Bruin. And, man, I'm going to tell you what, the Bolsheviks are wringing their hands and weeping, wailing, gnashing their teeth, and belching out lamentations all over the airwaves. And you know what? That's music to my ears. Before we get into that and start looking into the... uh, Basically, I'm going to be reading the decision or the majority opinion by Mr. Clarence Thomas, because it is packed full of Second Amendment goodness, baby, and you don't want to miss that. First, uh, talk to uh, Eric Pratt of Gun Owners of America, and he tells me that your calls and emails are working. They are feeling the heat up there on Capitol Hill, but you got to keep pouring it to them, Okay especially in the face of this initial non-binding vote on the infringement package that was colluded upon by the Democrat communists and the worthless compromised Judas Republicans. Uh, We need to keep the heat turned up, baby. Keep emailing and calling your senators. If they don't answer, leave a voicemail. They do listen to them. So get a hold of them. Pour it to them, baby. Keep it going. Because the longer we can keep them from coming to a final vote, the better, because then the emotional wave dies. And in the face of facts, they have nothing. They have nothing to combat it with. So... Now, in light of this Supreme Court decision as of 6-23-22, there's a lot of precedents and principles that are referred to throughout this case. Obviously, uh, judging by Clarence Thomas's majority opinion, so under New York law, as of Thursday morning, any lawful citizen that so much as stepped outside their home with a firearm immediately became a felon, unless, of course, they had managed to obtain the also gracious permission of the state to do so. But they could only do that if they were able to prove good cause or necessary cause or the need to defend themselves, which is ludicrous beyond measure and boldly obvious as to why they would need to defend themselves. Have you seen the spike, the horrific climb in New York's crime? 
Yeah, everybody with half a brain and a television can see that things are going really south up in New York. So they, you know, the necessary, the, the need to have to show the need to defend yourself is a direct violation of the Second and Fourteenth Amendment. Now, I said that a long time ago when this case was first filed. Talked about how the requirements were absolute and flagrant violations of the Second and Fourteenth Amendment. Well, apparently, Mr. Clarence Thomas agrees with me on that, or I should say I agree with him. He's the guy with all the degrees, I'm sure. Uh, But you got to think about a few things in light of this ruling. The immediate impact of this ruling is that New York's utterly constitutional proper cause requirement has been struck down. That's the immediate impact. What uh, What's yet to be seen and the implications that are going to follow uh, is the impact on other states and their equally unconstitutional laws, many of which are identical in principle and in policy, and yes, in precedent, because like I said, one of these communist-occupied territories passes a law, and the other communist-occupied territories go, oh, yeah, we like that infringement. We're going to steal that idea from you and implement it here. And especially states like California and New Jersey, two of my favorite places in the world, <coughs> both of which have concealed carry programs uh, and policies for issuing very similar to New York's now former proper cause requirement. So New York says, hey, you got to show us a good reason to carry a gun. Well, my I've said here before, what I would do is simply hand them a newspaper. Here's my justifiable cause right here. Here's my proper cause. Look at the crime you guys can't seem to stop. You kind of, you can protect me, but you can't stop this violent crime if people are getting hurt out here. I have every right to defend myself. What's also going to be interesting to see is whether the success of this decision is going to lead to lawsuits against those other state governments as well, like California and New Jersey and others. And I do believe it's going to happen because this is a great precedent from which to launch a counteroffensive against the communists uh, as they have been gobbling up, or actually I say winning aggression after aggression against the people. The matter of fact, a little sidebar here. These aggressions are passed by the state. The state basically says, we're going to do this to you, and if you don't like it, we're going to come arrest you and throw you in jail if you try to actually freely exercise your right. That's what I mean when I say aggressions. When the state or the or the federal government passes a law, a gun control law, and says, this law uh, the, the, says you cannot do what you've been doing, And if you do, these are the penalties that we will send men with guns to enforce it. Okay, what that is, that's aggression. That is criminal aggression, according to the Supreme Law. Now we're going to get into uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's majority opinion. And baby, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to offer very little commentary throughout this. I want you to listen closely, listen on purpose, because he uses a lot of legalese here. And if I feel it needs to be explained, I'll do my best to, but uh, in no way do I presume to be a good translator of legalese to the common vulgar tongue. It says, New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public 
for self-defense. In District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago, the courts held, or the, the court, the Supreme Court held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protected an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Under Heller, when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct, and to justify a firearm regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Okay, what he's saying there simply is, is um, if you're going to try to say that we're going to impose this regulation on you, it has to uh, also jibe with past regulations that were actually able to be rectified and squared with the Second Amendment. So just because, well, there's a regulation back there, we can point to it and says they, they, we've been, it's been happening all this time, all this time, uh, every time, then we can go ahead and keep doing it. No, precedent does not mean something is right. Just because there's a precedent doesn't mean it's, it's, it's morally right, especially. I mean, abusers have a precedent of abusing their victims. Doesn't make it right. And certainly, gun control laws are exactly that. They are nothing but abuse of the citizenry, but I digress. So he says, to justify firearm regulation, the government has to demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Since Heller and McDonald, the courts of appeals have developed a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combines history with means in scrutiny. The court rejects that two-part approach as having one step too many. Very interesting to hear that. Uh, step one is broadly consistent with Heller, and you'll notice many times throughout this decision, he references the Heller decision. Uh, step one is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a text, uh, I'm sorry, a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support a second step that applies means-end scrutiny in the Second Amendment context, Heller's methodology centered on constitutional text and history. It did not invoke any means-end test, such as strict or intermediate scrutiny, and it expressly rejected any interest-balancing uh, inquiry akin to intermediate scrutiny. Now, the long, you know, the short version of that, the legalese and everything being translated down to where good old boys like me from Georgia can understand it, uh, he's basically saying that uh, what the means in test is, well, what we meant to do was this. Our means and our intentions was this, and that, you know, the means to the end thing must be applied in this case. Uh, no, because if you do that, you could point to any precedent and say, well, there's my justification, okay? He continued, historical analysis can sometimes be difficult and nuanced, but reliance on history to inform the meaning of constitutional text is more legitimate and more administrable than asking judges to, quote, 
make difficult empirical judgments about the costs and benefits of firearms restrictions. And that's what he's talking about there with the means in thing. Well, here's what it's going to cost, and here's the benefits of it, and this is why we're going to do it like this. He said that that's not the proper way to do it. In other words, that step should not even be applied here. That's not the It's not a matter of how much it's going to cost. It's not a it's not a matter of what the imagined or supposed benefits may be of firearms restrictions. And in the case of New York and others who have these draconian laws, the benefits are indeed imagined because they certainly don't do a cotton picking thing for public safety. So. He said, especially given their lack of experience or expertise in that field, and very rightly said. Um, federal courts tasked with making difficult empirical judgments regarding firearm regulations under the banner of intermediate scrutiny often defer to the determinations of legislatures. While judicial deference to legislative interest and balancing is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, it is not deference that the Constitution demands here. All right, so basically he's removing one of the steps that most people apply to these kind of cases, including the Supreme Court, how they have also judged these kind of cases. So he's saying the Constitution is going to be the final authority here. That's going to be the main, the, the main foundation of all of this, and any regulation must be squared with that. So he continues, the Second Amendment is the very product of an interest balancing by the people. In other words, the balancing of the interests and the balance of, you know, uh, prudence and uh, legality and public safety and all that stuff. He said it's a very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. And he cites Heller again here. Uh, that's a very interesting thing he just said. He said the, pro the interest balancing by the people, not by the courts, elevates above all other interests the right of the law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. So he's saying this is the catalyst. This is and should be the catalyst of our decision. He continued, the test that the court set forth in Heller and applies today requires courts to assess whether modern firearms regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historical understanding, oh, I guarantee you, as this was being read, the attorneys for New York were wringing their hands like, oh, crap, here it comes, we're in trouble. When he said that, we know we're in trouble. Yeah, because he's laying the foundation for what he's about to say, and they're definitely not going to like that. So this was perfect. He continued, of course, the regulatory challenges posed by firearms today are not always the same as those that preoccupied the founders in 1791 or the Reconstruction generation in 1868, but the Constitution can and must 
apply to circumstances beyond those which the founders specifically anticipated, even though its meaning is fixed according to the understandings of those who ratified it. In other words, they ratified that in within the realm of their experience, within the realm of their knowledge and understanding, and they Basically, they said this is the principle, the principle that not only is going to be appealed to and applied here in our day, but in the days to come uh, in the future when we're no longer here anymore. So I like what he said there. The Constitution can and must apply to circumstances beyond those that the founders specifically anticipated. And you know what he's taking a slap there at? He's taking a slap at all the people to say, well, the founders couldn't possibly have anticipated these kind of weapons. Um, it wasn't about anticipating what kind of weapons. It was about a principle. It wasn't about the weapons. Mr. Thomas continues, indeed, the court recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment's historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Uh, it reference, its reference to arms does not apply only to those arms in existence in the 18th century. So I like the way Justice Thomas is doing it. He's brushing aside that um, what should I say, allegation or uh, what should I, their um, objection, I should say. He said, to determine whether a firearm regulation is consistent with the Second Amendment, Heller and McDonald point toward at least two relevant metrics. First, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense. And second, whether that regulatory burden is comparably justified. Because, quote-unquote, individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment, right? These two metrics are central considerations when engaging in an, uh, an, an analogical, uh, yeah, analogical, analogical, thank you, uh, corrected myself there, uh, inquiry. And a uh, slight disagreement here. It's not just about individual self-defense, but also defense of community and country if necessary. But I digress. I understand totally what he's saying here. He said, to be clear, even if a modern day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it still may be analogous enough to pass constitutional muster. For example, courts can use analogies to long-standing laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings to determine whether modern regulations are constitutionally permissible. That said, the respondents, that would be the state of New York, attempt to characterize New York's proper cause requirement as a sensitive place, and quote-unquote, law lacks merit. In other words, they, they're saying, well, the entirety of the island of Manhattan uh, is a very sensitive place, and therefore, uh, it, like, just like a school, you know, a school that needs to be a gun-free zone, and government buildings need to be a gun-free zone, we're declaring the entire island of Manhattan to be one of those very also sensitive places. He said, but that lacks merit because there is no historical basis for New York to effectively declare the island of Manhattan a sensitive place simply because it is crowded and protected generally by the New York City Police Department. 
Having made the constitutional standard endorsed in Heller more explicit, the court applies that standard to New York's proper cause requirement. And this is what the Democrat communists were very fearful of. He said, number one, it is undisputed that the petitioners, Mr. Koch and Mr. Nash, two ordinary law-abiding adult citizens are part of, quote-unquote, the people whom the Second Amendment protects. And no party disputes that handguns are weapons in common use today for self-defense. The court has little difficulty concluding also that the plain text of the Second Amendment protects Coach's and Nash's proposed uh, course of conduct carrying handguns publicly for self-defense. Nothing in the Second Amendment's text draws a home public, uh, uh, a distinction between the home and the public with respect to the right to keep and bear arms. And the definition of bear naturally encompasses public carry. Moreover, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation, and confrontation can surely take place outside the home. Second, the burden then falls on the respondents, that is the people being sued, which was the state of New York, to show that New York's proper cause requirement is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. To do so, the respondents appeal to a variety of historical sources from the late 1200s to the early 1900s. But when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, not all history is created equal. Oh, I love that comment right there. I tell you what, that is a, <laughs> that's a big touche if ever I've heard one. Not all history is created equal. Amen, Justice Thomas. And now we're going to take just a brief commercial break. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Get you a sandwich. Get something to drink. But get your butt right back here because we have some more of Justice Clarence Thomas's majority opinion on the decision issued today. That would be Thursday, uh, June 23rd of 2022. A very momentous decision. And we'll be right back with more of it on the Shooting Straight Radio podcast. Stick around. Hey y'all, Rockin' Rod Conservative here. I'd like to take a second and thank y'all for supporting Royce and the Shooting Straight podcast. Uh, I've known the man for a number of years now, advertised on the show for, oh, basically ever since I met the man. And uh, don't think that we, and he doesn't appreciate the support that you give him. As y'all know, I am a licensed gun dealer, so if you're looking for firearms, you need to sell some, like to trade some, you can reach me at 561 561- 445-0429, either by calling me or texting me. Inventory's pretty good right now. Something else I'd like to say is, you know it, I know it, everybody with a brain knows it. Something just don't feel quite right right now. Trust your gut, folks. Take care of each other. And never forget, taxation is theft. Sigurd, godfather of the dirty hippie mafia. The American Police Hall of Fame, proud sponsors of the Shooting Straight Radio podcast. Who are we? We are the keepers of the history of individual law enforcement officers. We are a facility that honors the fallen and supports their families. 
We are a training facility that teaches civilians how to be their own first responder. We are a venue that offers free tactical and strategic training for sworn officers. We are a great place to visit and learn. Go to APHF.org to find out more. Freedom Guns in Rockledge, just north of Rockledge High School, on the opposite side of the road, 1255 Florida Avenue, Suite A. You can check them out at freedom-guns.com. And better yet, just stop in there in person and meet Mike and his son, Mike, and Dennis and the rest of the crew out there. Got a great selection of handguns, bomb guns, ammunition, accessories, holsters, magazines. What are you looking for? Mike and the boys got you covered out there at Freedom Guns. If you need a nice big Liberty safe to stow all them guns in, well, he offers those too. He's got a floor full of them out there you can look at, and he offers free delivery and installation. Again, check them out at freedom-guns.com. When you stop down there or if you're out of state and you call and maybe order a gun from him and have it shipped to your dealer, make sure you tell him you heard about him on the Shooting Straight Radio podcast. The Shooting Straight Radio Podcast is proudly sponsored in part by The Gun Sight in Merritt Island with a nine-lane, 25-yard indoor shooting range, handgun and machine gun rentals, a fully stocked gun store with plenty of long guns, handguns, ammunition, and accessories to choose from. They're your one-stop shop in Merritt Island for all things necessary to responsibly exercise your Second Amendment right. Check them out at gunsightrange.com or stop by in person at 125 South Banana River Drive. And make sure you tell them that you heard about the Gunsight on the Shooting Straight Radio Podcast. Yes, huge thank yous to the sponsors of this program. Sigerman, Rock and Rod Row, American Police Hall of Fame, Freedom Guns and Rockledge, and the Gunsight. I really appreciate you guys and your consistent sponsorship of this program. Hey, the links to all of my sponsors can be found on each episode page. Uh, just click on that link, takes you, uh, takes you to their website, or it gives you their phone number and contact information. So make sure you frequent my sponsors. Tell them you heard about them on the Shooting Straight Radio podcast, and I'd sure thank you for it. So before the break, I like how Mr. Justice Clarence Thomas says, he said, when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, not all history is created equal. And he was referring to the various regulations that have been levied against the keeping and bearing of arms since this country was founded. He said, constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope that they were understood to have when the people adopted them. Bingo, right there. I mean, I'm going to read that one more time. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them. The Second Amendment was adopted in 1791. The 14th Amendment in 1868. Historical evidence that long predates or postdates uh, either time May not, and I, uh, I kind of uh, edited this to make it really sound what, it's, what he meant to say, may not be able to illuminate the scope of the right. 
With these principles in mind, the court concludes that respondents, that is the state of New York, have failed to meet their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirements. The respondents, uh, number one, the respondents' substantial reliance on English history and custom before the founding makes some sense given Heller's statement that the Second Amendment codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. And that's true. It did. Uh, A lot of the, the common law regarding firearms and the keeping of bearing of arms came over with the founders from England. Mr. Thomas continues, but the court finds that history or the court finds that that history ambiguous at best and sees little reason to think that the framers would have thought it applicable in the new world. The court cannot conclude from this historical record that by the time of the founding, English law would have justified restricting the right to publicly bear arms suited for self-defense only to those who demonstrate some special need for self-protection. Number two, respondents next direct the court to the history of the colonies and early republic, but they identify only three restrictions on public carry at that time. While the court doubts that just three colonial regulations could suffice to show a tradition of public carry regulations, even looking at those laws on their own terms, the court is not convinced that they regulated public carry akin to the New York law at issue. The statutes essentially prohibited bearing arms in a way that spread fear or terror among the people, including by carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. Whatever the likelihood that handguns were considered dangerous and unusual during the colonial period, they are today the quintessential self-defense weapon. Thus, These colonial laws provide no justification for laws restricting the public carry of weapons that are unquestionably in common use today. Number three, only after the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791 did public carry restrictions proliferate. Isn't that something? As soon as there was a law that told the government, you may not restrict this right, suddenly they try to restrict the right. In droves. I mean, it's, it's, it's public carry restrictions popped up here, popped up there. I mean, none of this before the adoption and the ratification of the Second Amendment, only afterward. Yeah, that's pretty amusing. He said the respondents rely heavily on these restrictions, which generally fell into three categories. Now, get these three categories. First one, common law offenses. Secondly, statutory prohibitions. And thirdly, surety statutes, which, by the way, most of our concealed carry laws throughout the country are originated and are founded on, uh, wittingly or unwittingly, on surety statutes. He said none of these restrictions imposed a substantial burden on public carry analogous to that imposed by New York's restrictive licensing regime. So... Uh, What he's basically saying is what they're pointing to in an effort to justify their illegal law just doesn't fly. He said, as during the colonial and founding periods, and he first references common law offenses of affray, A-F-F-R-A-Y, which means going armed to the terror of the people. You're arming yourself to be intimidating. Mm -hmm. A lot like that uh, NFA coalition, that guy who... Uh, him, him and his fellow uh, radicals, 
uh, a group of black Americans would arm themselves and walk around trying to intimidate people. Well, that is illegal, and it doesn't square with the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment only squares with lawful self-defense. Okay. He said they continued to impose some limits on firearm carry in the post-war period, but there is no evidence indicating that these common law limitations impaired the right of the general population to peaceably public carry. Secondly, statutory prohibitions. Uh, from the In the early mid-19th century, some states began enacting laws that prescribed the concealed carry of pistols and other small weapons, but the post-war state court decisions upholding them events a consensus view that states could not altogether prohibit the public carry of arms protected by the Second Amendment or state analogs. Thirdly, the surety statutes in the mid-19th century, and this is what these are the three types of statutes that the state of New York was appealing to and saying, we're modeling this law after those laws. And Justice Thomas is chopping them down one by one. He said surety statutes in the mid-19th century, many jurisdictions began adopting laws that required certain individuals to post bond before carrying weapons in public. Mm-hmm. Contrary to the respondent's position, these surety statutes in no way represented direct precursors to New York's proper cause requirement. While New York presumes that individuals have no public carry right without a showing of heightened need, the surety statutes presumed that individuals had a right to public carry that could be burdened only if another person could make out a specific showing of reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace, a lot like restraining orders these days. So in other words, if someone says, I am afraid of that person carrying a gun because they said that they would blow my head off. Okay, I'm referring to the you know, years gone by, way back in the beginning. Um, back then, if you if you uh, were told, though, no, you cannot carry a gun because this person says that you have threatened them, you would have to say, well, you know what? I have to carry a gun because I have a specific need because I am employed in such and such a field, and therefore I fear for my safety. And I must carry a gun. So you would have to post a surety bond. And it's usually pretty high. And you would forfeit that surety bond if anything happened. So uh, that's what that's actually referring to. So for the state of New York to point to that and say, see, there's a precedent right there. They're used to have, they have to uh, pay a surety bond and show justifiable need. Well, they basically ripped it all out of context, and that's how they tried to present it, out of context. And unfortunately for them, people like Justice Thomas go in and do their homework and do their research uh, when they start making these decisions, much to their chagrin. So um, he said, and even then, proving special needs simply avoided a fee. Hmm. So... Back then, they said, well, you can't carry a gun unless you pay a surety bond. Well, why try to pay a surety bond? It's my right. It doesn't matter. Well, uh, I have a special need. 
I uh, I have a particular need to defend myself because I uh, maybe ride shotgun on a stagecoach, whatever the case. But okay, well then you can do so. That was the justifiable need thing that was added to those regulations. So he said, in sum, the historical evidence from post-war America does demonstrate that the manner of public carry was subject to reasonable regulation, but none of these limitations on the right to keep and bear arms operated to prevent law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying firearms in public for that purpose. Fourth, evidence from around the uh, adoption of the 14th Amendment does not also does not support the respondent's position. The discussion of the right to keep and bear arms in Congress and in public dis, uh, discourse as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly freed slaves generally demonstrates that during Reconstruction, the right to keep and bear arms had limits that were consistent with a right of the public to peaceably carry handguns for self-defense. And here's the thing. The whole, if you, if you haven't noticed by now throughout this entire thing, we the people have a right to keep and bear arms for lawful defense only. Yep, but you don't have the right to carry a gun to be offensive. You don't have the right to carry a gun to uh, be threatening, menacing, anything like that. You only have the right to carry a gun for personal and or community defense or the defense of the country, whatever the case may be. And that makes perfect sense. Any restriction, there is a restriction on you keeping and bearing of arms that's natural. It's naturally implied. And that is you may not carry a gun if you are a menacing, evil, violent, thug person. And that makes total sense. And it squares perfectly with the Second Amendment. Okay. He said the court acknowledges two Texas cases, English versus state and state versus Duke, that approved a statutory reasonable grounds standard for public carry analogous to New York's proper cause requirements, but these decisions were outliers and therefore provide little insight into how post-war courts viewed the right to carry protected arms in public. Fifthly, he said, finally, respondents point to the slight uptick in gun regulation during the late 19th century, as the court suggested in Heller, however, late 19th century evidence cannot provide much insight into the meaning of the Second Amendment when it contradicts earlier evidence. In addition, the vast majority of the statutes that respondents invoke come from the Western territories. The bare existence of these localized restrictions cannot overcome the overwhelming evidence of an otherwise enduring American tradition permitting public carry. And, you know, he's very true. In some of those old West towns, they had laws that violated the Second Amendment, and they didn't last long. Even in Tombstone, you were not allowed to wear your gun. I think it was Tombstone, whatever whatever it was where Wyatt Earp was a sheriff. Uh, you were not allowed to wear your firearms publicly. And that was a violation of the Second Amendment. Matter of fact, it was the enforcement of that unconstitutional law that pretty much sparked the gunfight at the OK Corral. The, he said the bare existence of these localized restrictions cannot overcome the overwhelming evidence of an otherwise enduring American tradition permitting public carry. 
Moreover, these territorial laws were rarely subject to judicial scrutiny, and that's very true, too. So just because a law was in place and was left unscrutinized, you know, not scrutinized by a court, doesn't mean that it's a proper law, okay? He said the origins and continuing uh, significance, um, uh, let's see, I'm sorry, they do little to inform the origins and continuing significance of the amendment. Finally, these territorial restrictions deserve little weight because they were consistent with the transitory nature of of territorial governments. They were short-lived. Some were held unconstitutional shortly after passage, and others did not survive a territory's admission to the Union as a state. Sixth, after reviewing the Anglo-American history of public carry, the court concludes that respondents have not met their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirement. Apart from a few late 19th century outlier jurisdictions— American governments simply have not broadly prohibited the public carry of commonly used firearms for personal defense, nor have they generally required law-abiding responsible citizens to demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community to carry arms in public. The constitutional right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right. Amen, amen, amen. It is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. The exercise of other constitutional rights does not require individuals to demonstrate to government officers some special need. The Second Amendment right to carry arms in public for self-defense is no different. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their rights to keep and bear arms in public. Amen and amen. Now, of course, in the wake of this decision, as I said at the beginning of the program, the, the communists, the Bolsheviks, began weeping and wailing and wringing their hands and threatening retribution. They want to take back this territory They've held it for so long, since 1911, actually, in New York, and they feel like they've lost some ground, and they have. Rightfully so, they think. Um, governor Hochul, the governess of New York, she stated, she called the decision shocking, absolutely shocking. And she said she already had language for a new measure that she'd like to pass. In other words, they're mounting a counteroffensive. Yeah, because that's how they do things. Because this is a war, people. We are in a war for our rights. I hope it only stays in the courts and that we win eventually. But as I said on the last podcast, I'm getting about sick to death of having to defend my rights against my government on a regular basis. I can only imagine how New Yorkers have felt all this time. Of course, a lot of them have been institutionalized into this stuff and born into it, and they feel that they're supposed to be second-class citizens and always at the mercy of the government and the criminal element. I'm not one of those people. Of course, I don't live in New York either. But she said that uh, she and the other legislative leaders were discussing dates. They're actually calling a special session for this. Yeah, <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah, this, this one really got them. And I think they kind of knew it was coming, but uh, they feel like they're back on their heels. Uh, 
And uh, local officials, they've been preparing all kinds of strategies. And uh, Mayor Mayor Adams of New York City, he said that he uh, and others were looking to draft uh, legislation on the federal, state, and local levels in preparation. Preparation of what? Preparation of what? You think you're gonna? You think your violent crime is going to spike now that law-abiding people can defend themselves? The Manhattan, the Manhattan District Attorney uh, Alvin L. Bragg, he said that the decision severely undermines public safety. How? How does lawful people being able to defend themselves lawfully in public with firearms? How does that compromise their safety? Their safety has already been compromised by people like you, Mr. Bragg, who are letting criminals off the hook. They walk into jail and walk back out a short time later on their own recognizance and commit more crimes, come back about an hour later, get thrown back out on the street. You guys have been doing this for how long now? Your violent crime rate is spiking throughout the entirety of the state, but especially in Manhattan and New York City. And you're saying that this ruling that favors the Constitution and the free exercise of rights that people were born with is going to undermine public safety. My goodness, could you be any more constitutionally dyslexic? He had said that the his office was planning for a potential storm of litigation, too, including lawyers filing motions to dismiss gun possession indictments and even convictions. Good, because there's a lot of innocent, lawful Americans that were turned into felons by simply walking out their door with a firearm on their person or being in possession of a firearm uh, without having the proper permits. Good. There's a whole, but what is so terrible about letting some of those people out when you're letting violent criminals out regularly every day, multiple times a day? Yeah, what is it about you people? Again, you guys are morally dyslexic too. You can't stand the thought of releasing an innocent person, but you, you got no problem releasing felons on a regular basis and multiple times a day sometimes. He sent an email to his prosecutors saying that uh, they were planning on working with Governor Hochul uh, and Eric Adams and other district attorneys on bills that would, quote, protect New Yorkers. Protect them from what? And also withstand legal challenge. Uh, yeah. So you're saying you're going to craft a law that that's Justice Clarence Thomas proof. Is that it? Uh, again, you guys can't protect New Yorkers. If you could, you would have no violent crime. He said Thursday, this is a quote, that his office was analyzing the ruling and crafting gun safety legislation that will take the strongest steps possible to mitigate the damage done today. The damage to what? The state's power? Good. There needs to be some damage done to that. Of course, Governor Newsom out in California, the communist-occupied territory on the left coast, he tweeted out, this is a dark day in America. Uh, only for you Bolsheviks, okay? 
He said, this is a dangerous decision from a court that's hell-bent on pushing a radical ideological agenda. A radical ideological agenda? Of what? Siding with the Constitution? That's a radical ideological agenda? He said, and infringing on the rights of states to protect our citizens from being gunned down in our streets, schools, and churches. First of all, states don't have rights. People have rights. States have certain powers that are delegated to them by the people. The people have the rights. And you don't like the fact that the court today took away some of your power. And he says, to protect our citizens from being gunned down in our streets. If you could do that, how come they're still being gunned down in your streets? Hmm? Our streets, our schools, and our churches. This is shameful. You are shameful. Yes, we should import you back to Russia, Venezuela, China, some other communist-occupied territory somewhere. Because you've got way too much power over there where you're at, you filthy communist. And then, of course, Mikey Bloomberg, the nanny boy, the one who has a deity complex and likes to think of himself as a god. He said the legacy of the Roberts court is looking darker and more dangerous by the day. Okay, feel free to elaborate on that. How is it dark and dangerous when... The court sided with the Constitution and lawful citizens' ability and right to keep and bear arms. He said this decision siding with the gun lobby. Uh, in, in, in that that majority opinion that I read earlier, uh, was there any mention of the NRA or GOA or anything like that? Hmm? Yeah. Of course, they have to blame the boogeyman, the gun lobby. He said this decision siding with the gun lobby will lead to more innocent people being killed at a time when gun violence is already surging. You know what's really going to happen, Mikey? The opposite. And you don't like it because then you don't have a boogeyman and a catalyst to steal people's rights any, anymore. You don't have your, your, your cause and your power to infringe the rights and upon the lives of New Yorkers took a hit today, and you don't like that. Gun violence is going to drop. When the people begin to defend themselves with firearms there in New York, it's going to drop, baby. And, of course, Biden, the Bolshevik, he had to chime in. I'm deeply disappointed by the Supreme Court's ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Obviously, this was all written on a teleprompter because otherwise he'd be about, you know, three words into the sentence. He'd be talking about rabbits committing for fornication in Berlin or something. Uh, you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. He said, since 1911, the state of New York has required individuals who would like to carry a concealed weapon in public to show a need to do so for the purpose of self-defense and to acquire a license. Well, and, and that was wrong, according to the court, Jojo, mm -hmm. that it was wrong because you don't need, it's not called the Bill of Needs, okay? It's called the Bill of Rights, and they have a right to defend themselves. They don't have to prove to you that they need to. More than a century later, the United States Supreme Court has chosen to strike down New York's long-established authority to protect its citizens. Really? You have the authority to do that? Then how come you haven't done it, New York? 
This ruling contradicts both, both common sense and the Constitution and should deeply trouble us all. You know what? I'm not even going to read the rest of this because I, I just want to vomit. Um, Justice Clarence Thomas plainly laid out the case on how it does square with the Constitution. So really nothing more needs to be said. So this has been a pretty momentous day for us, this ruling on June 23rd, 2022. And hats off to the Supreme Court. I'm kind of shocked that actually three of them dissented, but it really doesn't matter. Six of them said, no, this is the right ruling. And they did make the right ruling. I just wish they would take up more Second Amendment cases from around the country. There are so many more that need to be tried before the court. But again, I hope this leads to this, 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 I hope this lays a precedent for the Constitution and for the people and a springboard from which we can start suing other states like California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, all the other ones that try to say, you don't have any right or need to carry a gun. Yeah, well, the Supreme Court of the United States said today, yes, you do. I'll catch you on the next episode of the Shooting Straight Radio podcast. Keep your powder dry, keep your head on a swivel, and keep those phone calls and emails pouring into your representatives. And I'll catch you on the next episode. Oh, yeah. Incoming rounds have the right of way. Royce out. So turn it on, tune in, crank it up. Royce Bartlett and the Shooting Straight Show.